Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter this morning, and um, as is our practice, we want to hear what God's Word has to say to us. And uh, so we are going to be continuing uh, kind of part two of what last week's message was, which was the persevering in a living hope. Uh, so this is what this one is called this morning, persevering in a living hope, part two. And um, uh, we're, our, the, the main verses for the teaching will be verses six through nine. But for our scripture reading, I would like to read three through nine so we catch the whole flow. So you get part one and part two uh, combined. And so um, if you are turned there to first Peter chapter uh, chapter one. Verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the reading of God's word. We say thanks be to God. And let's pray together. God, um, having heard your word, um, I do ask you now that you would that you would guide um, that you would guide all of us, that you would by your spirit would um, have these words of scripture written by the Apostle Peter, that they would leap off the page, spiritually speaking, that you would, by your spirit, would cause us to, to see things anew and afresh and for us to cling to every single word and mine it for all of its treasures. That it can nourish our souls and strengthen us in our persevering in our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we ask that um, here in the next few moments as we reflect on uh, what your word says, what it teaches us, uh, that we have keen eyes, spiritually speaking, um, that our ears are alert and attentive to what you teach us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen and amen. 
So, uh, as I mentioned, this is part two of our perseverance uh, in a living hope that we saw in verses three through five last week. And just a reminder, this is the Apostle Peter writing this letter. He's writing this to a group of churches whom he calls the elect exiles. Um, They are exiles, worldly speaking. They're cut off from the world hated by the world, despised by the world, but they're precious to God. And so he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith, in their trials, in their difficulties. And he does so by, um, with this doxology of sorts that we saw last week, blessing God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of the things, the benefits that he has given to us. And that he ends with, God's power in verse 5, guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He's guarding us through faith. Uh, we, we believe, we trust, we cling it to Jesus, but as we do, we find that he's clinging to us and that it's by God's power he's sustaining our perseverance. Or we could put it this way, um, Our perseverance in the faith is uh, done so by God's preservation of his people. And so this morning, I want to look at six lessons I think Peter has for us in the remaining opening here that we saw in verses six through nine. Six, uh, Six things that Peter wants to teach us. You might be able to find some more, but these are six things that I saw in this passage that Peter has to say to us. And here's the first one. Again, coming off of what he says in verse 5 about God's power preserving you, guarding you through faith. God's preservation of you, Christian, produces deep spiritual joy in the midst of earthly heartache. So if you're following along in the handout, it's God's preservation of you produces deep spiritual joy in the midst of earthly heartache. Heartache. You see that at the very beginning. In this, you rejoice, he says. Though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, right? There's rejoicing in the trials. It's a very familiar theme in the New Testament. Uh, A necessary theme, if you know church history and what the Christian church had to experience in the first century for several centuries. That there was a necessary merging together these ideas of joy, of our salvation, in the midst of trials. Joy in the midst of our trials. Now, in verse 6, you might notice it says, And in this you rejoice. Strictly speaking, this cannot be referring to the words, because you're like, because you have to ask yourself, the this, in this, what is this? What is the this referring to? Um, Some say, well, what, maybe in verse 5, you know, salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It actually can't refer, strictly speaking, I mean, to hope, inheritance, or salvation. The reason why is because that Greek word, those are all feminine words in Greek. They have a feminine ending. And the this is, it's a masculine ending or a neuter ending. Now, bear with me here, because we're getting into the weeds here a little bit. But I think this is really cool, and it's it's fascinating stuff so as you're studying it you're going well this it has to refer to a masculine noun or a neuter noun what's the masculine noun well 
you have to go all the way up to like verse three and the masculine now would be either God, the father or Jesus Christ. The other option is that the, this is neuter. And what that means is it's referring to all of it. This is a common thing where you'd have this neuter, this saying, and everything I've been saying, okay, everything I've been saying from verse three, all the way to the present. And in all of this, you rejoice. So it's all of it. It's hope. It's our inheritance. It's our salvation. It's our regeneration being, you know, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. We, he caused us to be born again to an inheritance. This is all through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are united with Christ through faith in him. We die to self. We die to sin. We're raised with him in newness of life now. And we give an eternal life. And that we receive an eternal inheritance that he is keeping guarded for you. And not only does he guard that, he's guarding you. He's protecting not only your treasure in hopes that you might make it there one day. He's guarding you on the way there. All of that. All of that, he says, this is the cause for your rejoicing. This is the basis for your rejoicing. God's preservation of you produces deep spiritual joy in the midst of earthly heartache. And in this, in, in the rejoice, but it's interesting, the word rejoice there, it's not a secular term. It's strictly a, a, a Christian religious term. It's joy in God's salvation for his people. So what Peter is saying here, he's, he's saying everything that God has blessed you with forms the basis for your rejoicing, even in the midst of trials, even in the middle of grief. And the term he's using here is he's, the term is for the emotional response to difficulty. Um, you remember James says, consider it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of many time. That's he's referring to trials. The term that Peter is using here is he's talking about the effect that trials have on you emotionally. That's why he uses grieved. You've been grieved by these things. This is the earthly heartache. And Peter says in the midst, in the middle of earthly heartache, when you think of God's salvation the whole work that he has done for you it causes us to rejoice simultaneously joy and grief i think habakkuk chapter 3 puts this very well in chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 he says though the fig tree i think i have a slide here yes so you can see though the fig tree should not blossom nor the fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive oil of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I think Habakkuk here is capturing really well what Peter is saying to these elect exiles. You rejoice even though you're grieved. You rejoice even though you're grieved. And this grieving and joy is very interesting that these are simultaneous. Um, the Christians are to be, I'm trying to figure out a good way of phrasing this, like the rejoicing grievers or the grieving rejoicers. We, 
the, the Christian is to experience griefs and heartaches with joy, not as a replacement for a substitute. Uh, when you become a Christian, your griefs and heartaches don't just magically disappear. Christians will experience grief and heartache, and it hurts, but we have joy in the middle of it. Um, we were doing some work on our house this, we this last week, and I don't remember the song, but there was some uh, country song. Um, blame Janet for that. No. <laughs> not going to throw her under the bus. So we were listening to country, some country song, and I don't remember what country song it was, but it was something, um, do you remember the words? Something about don't cry, don't shed a tear for me, because where I'm going, uh, it wasn't about um, beer and your dogs running away and your truck breaking down and stuff like that. It was actually like a very, like spiritually, I was like, is this a Christian song? Is it, you know, but it was about the place where I'm going, there's not going to be any tears or crying. And then Janet goes, man, I can't wait for those places. I don't want anybody crying for me. And then she goes, well, you could shed a little bit of a tear, but don't. But don't. And, and so that got me thinking. I was like, yeah, that's interesting that Christians do. We still experience grief. We're, we don't become now like it, it vanishes from us. It's no longer a part of our Christian experience. We can experience grief, griefs in this life. We experience both of them. And uh, so you can also um, of. You remember American Gospel, the the uh, the Berger family um, that and she had this rare disorder. And uh, I remember watching that and you could they have a show on AGTV, the American Gospel has a, a streaming service now and they have a show and you could see you could watch their show and you could see how she's progressing and her health is really bad. And and um, and she has this joy of this salvation. She understands this gospel and she'll cry. She'll just break down and cry because of the pain and the physical difficulties that she has. She's modeling really well, I think, this idea of grieving and joy at the same time. Paul says this uh, in 1 Thessalonians. When he's talking about the Thessalonians who have questions about the end times and the resurrection. And since you've left, Paul, we've had people who've part of our church who've died and when is this resurrection happening and they have all these questions and paul responds back and he says i do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that's the term for those who have passed away have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that jesus died and rose again even so through jesus god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep but it's that line that you may grieve as those who do not have hope. He doesn't say uh, to those who are grieving loss of loved ones. He doesn't say, hey, just remember your joy of salvation. You don't grieve anymore. He says, no, you grieve, but you grieve differently. The world grieves in a different way than you do because they don't have the hope of the resurrection that can be had through this free gift of, of eternal life through Christ. And he says, no, you're, you're not immune from grief by becoming a Christian, but you grieve differently. It's that merging together of joy and uh, grief. And I think is uh, a good example for us and what Peter is teaching us. God's preservation of you, that whole picture, produces a deep spiritual joy in the midst of, not substitute for, uh, earthly heartache.
So, brothers and sisters, let's master the art of being the rejoicing grievers or the grieving rejoicers. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various strides. That's the first thing he wants to say. The second thing, earthly griefs are often a necessary part of God's purpose and plan. Okay, you kind of run over that and you may miss it here. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, which is kind of a little while is saying this earthly life, right? Um, For a little while, um, if necessary, and um, kind of what he's saying is this, this is necessary. Your griefs and heartaches that you will experience in your Christian life are actually necessary. They're not accidental occurrences. It's not happenstance. These are things that God has brought in your life for a very specific reason, which we'll get to in the next point. And this, whenever I encounter these kind of passages, I think of, um, I think of this book by an old Puritan named Thomas Boston. And the title of the book is called The Crook in the Lot. If anything, you like the Puritans just because they're cool little turn of phrases and stuff. The crook in the lot. And it's based off of this verse in Ecclesiastes where it says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Right? So this consider the work of God. If God has a purpose and a plan for something, um, you're not going to be able to override that. You can't override that. If God has made it crooked, you go ahead. Good luck straightening it is what the, the writer in Ecclesiastes says. And so this whole book is an exposition on that. And so it's called the crook in the lot. Now, the lot here means your lot in life. I had actually looked it up in, the, in a dictionary. It's like meaning number five or six, you know, like when you go into the dictionary for lot. It's not like Paul's lot, like he sells a lot of property. That's like number six. But number like five was the lot means your condition in life. Or, uh, and it says in the dictionary, particularly as determined by fate or destiny. For Boston, for all Christians, uh, it's not fate or destiny. The shape of our life is styled by God's providences. That's what he says. Yeah. So that's what it means by lot. And the crook is, you know, the adjective for like crooked. He means those unforeseen troubles that afflict us, that unsettle us or disturb us any way, in any way. And what Boston does is uh, very pastorally, he unpacks this whole idea to help God's people who are experiencing um, these present sufferings. You know, though now, if necessary, you're grieved by these various trials. And what he says here is that God brings about every person's lot and not in a fatalistic. Oh, this has happened to me. Oh, well, I can't change it. But in a, an intentional and providential way. He does it for a very specific reason. And so our earthly griefs are often necessary, frequently necessary, because they're part of God's purpose and plan. This leads to the third one. The purpose of earthly griefs are to refine and purify your faith in Christ. That's really clear from the so that in verse 7. So that 
He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and then uh, skip the little aside there, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. The term here he's using there for the tested is the, the refining of metals. Like the refiner's fire. So uh, if you familiar with this type of uh, this thing and it's an ancient practice it goes the way way back where a craftsman uh, someone trained in the metallurgic arts would take pieces of gold or silver and then would put them into a, a crucible and really hot melt it down and then as that happens the impurities or what's it called dross the dross in it and the impurities rise to the surface and then they would scrape it clean so you'd go through this process to refine gold. You've heard of the refiner's fire. This is what this is talking about. This is purifying um, uh, things like gold and other precious metals, molten metals. This is the, the term that Peter's using here for this testing, this trying. Your faith, if necessary, experiencing these, these griefs from these trials has a purpose to refine your faith like gold would be melted down and stripped off of all the impurities that's what these hardships and griefs are doing to your faith how many guys have experienced this trying times begging god to show where are you god what are you doing in the midst of of this crucible So the purpose of these earthly griefs, and they have a purpose, and that's to purify and to refine our faith. A couple of questions here. To whom uh, is directed this phrase, praise and glory and honor, at the end of, of verse 7 there? Um, frequently you'd think of praise, glory, and honor, that's being directed to, to God. Um, but I think here in this context that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not specifically saying it going directly to God. I think that it could potentially be talking about here, those who are standing fast in the midst of these trials and experiencing these griefs and clinging with faith will result in the believer in the last days getting praise and glory and honor from God. A couple of places. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians about when the Lord will return. He says he's going to bring to light the things hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then he will say, and then each one will receive his commendation from God. A little later in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. He, he says something very similar. He says, when the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I think that this, this tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor. This is not, it won't result in praise and glory and honor to, to God. He's speaking of what God does to the believer. The commendation we receive from God. Now back to these griefs. There's another question. When can I know 
the purpose in my griefs. How many of you have experienced griefs and heartaches and troubles? How many of you know that this is from the hand of the Lord? Okay, how many of you know that he's teaching you something through it, right? And then how many of you are like curious, when will this happen? Well, Peter says, it could be a long time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he says in verse 7, this will happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in point number four is we may never know. We may never know the true and ultimate purpose of the griefs. Until we meet with Christ in glory. He's specifically saying here, we'll be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ is revealed, and this is a term for his second coming. It's very similar to what he says at the end of uh, verse 5. In the last time, it's a reference to Christ's return. And he says, and at Christ's return, he's going to come and give the commendation to his believers. And those who have attested and genuine faith, the purpose won't be, may not be evident until, until Christ actually comes and we meet him in glory. Verse 7. That's number four. Number five is a refined and purified faith is of infinite worth. Now this gets to the aside part that Peter kind of just sandwiches in there. In the middle, verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Okay, it's just an, an an aside comment. That's why it has those m dashes to separate that out. And he's saying that a purified, this purified and re refined faith is of infinite worth and value. It is priceless or extremely expensive the term there for more precious it's one greek word for more precious in the esv uh, means expensive costly of great value it's only used three times in in the bible here and then it's used in john chapter 12 and you might remember this story of mary who comes to Jesus when he's with his disciples in the room. And she took a pound of, and it says, expensive ointment. You remember this story? And she takes this pound of expensive ointment, like 11 ounces, I think, is the litre or something is, is what it was refers to. It's like 11 ounces of Roman measurement. This 11 ounces, she takes this and she anoints Jesus' feet with all of it. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. You remember this story, right? This expensive anointment, ointment or perfume. This is a term that's used here. Now, it just says expensive. How, how much does that mean? Well, a little bit after that, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who ends up betraying Jesus, he, he complains and he objects to this whole thing. And he actually puts a value on it for us. He says, don't you know that we could have sold this for, do you remember the amount? 300 denarii. A denarii is uh, the average income, uh, an average laborer's daily wage. Okay, so get in mind a number of how much you make in a day. Okay, now multiply that times 300. That's, that's working like six days a week for a year. 
maybe just under six days a week for a year. That's the value. Can you, can you imagine uh, taking your entire income for a year and buying 11 ounces of perfume with it? I know most of the ladies in here are pretty sensible. They would think, that is not a sweet idea. That's a dumb idea. Husband, don't do that. Valentine's Day is coming up. Don't spend your entire salary on 11 ounces of, of perfume. But, but he does us a favor by putting a, a, an amount on that. He, we could have sold that like 300 300, we could have gotten a, a, an entire year's salary for somebody for that. Another place it's used, Matthew chapter 13, in Jesus' parables of the kingdom. When he says, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Okay, this is a business person. This is somebody who's savvy, an international business. A merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl... Of great value. That's the same Greek word there. Extreme value. Extremely expensive. He finds one per pearl. And then what does he do? He went and sold all that he had and bought it. Imagine selling, selling everything. Your house, your car, your investments, your hobbies, your collectibles. And then buying one pearl. This is... You know, like you're supposed to go, whoa, that's, that's outrageous. Well, that's the point of Jesus's parable. That's how valuable the kingdom is in terms of earthly wealth. That's, that is how valuable a refined and purified faith is. That's what Peter is saying. Your refined and purified faith is that valuable. It's of infinite worth. It's more precious than gold. He says gold that's refined in the fire. Now, uh, Janet had a really good question about this as we were reading this um, last night. She goes, this doesn't seem to make sense. So that more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. She's like, how can it perish? And it's a really good question here because gold is one of the most durable things. That's why it's so valuable. It's one of the most durable of, of all materials on the, in the world. And so even if you get it down to molten level and skim off the top, it's not perishing. What's Peter talking about here? I think he's talking about what he gets to in his next letter about all of the elements and the material elements of this world will perish in fire, ultimately. All of it's going to go at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I think what he's saying here is this, this is... This is gold as valuable as it is and purified after the dross has been removed is still going to perish at Christ's judgment. But your faith won't. Your faith is more precious than the most precious of metals on the earth in the most purest form. Think about that. The most precious metal that's on the earth today in its most purest form. And if you had all the world's amount of it. Still compares nothing. To your refined and purified faith in Christ. That's how valuable it should be. And this is what Christ tells us it should be. Because do, um, do not chase after things that will perish. That where moth and rust can destroy. 
And so our purified and refined faith is of infinite, uh, infinite worth. Paul puts it this way. Um, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 after spelling out for the Philippians all of uh, the guys study a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at this verse. Um, he spells out all of the, his accomplishments. Some of them he ab- obtained with his own efforts and his own merits. Some of them he was born into. You know, I was born into this certain tribe. He, he didn't have a choice in that. Uh, but he studied hard and became the Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he was from the right tribe. He had the right lineage. He had the right education. He had the right mentors. He had the, the right career path. And then Jesus got a hold of him. And he says this way. I count all of that. I count all of that as loss compared to uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all of those things. And think about it. Every, every accolade, every level of achievement that he had attained, when he became a Christian, that's what it cost him. He lost everything. It reminds me of uh, the, the book, um, The Unlikely uh, Convert, right? From Rosaria Butterfield, um, who was uh, a lesbian professor at a secular university and uh, and she hated Christianity and wanted to kind of, you know, and then she got some letter from a pastor who asked her these questions and she ends up becoming, uh, through a long process, becomes a Christian. And so her relationship ended. Her friendships were, were gone. She couldn't really even do her occupation in that secular university anymore. And so she had some resentment from her griefs. That she was experiencing. And she tells the story in this book of coming into this Bible study with all of these women and just kind of having this edge and angst about all of them because she just thought all of their life was all together. And she was like, in order for me to be Christian, do you know what I lost? And she heard story after story after story from all of the various women in their discipleship that this is what a relationship with Jesus cost me. She realizes Okay, they've lost something. They too, all of us, in order to become a Christian and to be a faithful Christian, you lose something. And you grieve that. You have to grieve that. This is what Paul did. He says, for, the, for his sake, I suffered the loss of all of those things. Why? Because a refined and purified faith in Christ is more valuable than any of those things. And he says, and I count them rubbish. He uses a dirty word here. This is waste. If you have a dog, you've picked this word up in your yard. He says all of that, everything is as valuable as that compared to knowing Christ and to gain him and found in him. That's number five. A purified and refined faith is of infinite worth. And lastly, the essence of a relationship with Jesus is love and trust even when he is unseen with our physical eyes. You see this in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, right? Because he's writing to a group of churches that probably were the, um, the fruit of missionary outreach. Okay? They weren't in Galilee. They, 
very likely hadn't seen Jesus, they didn't get to experience what Peter experienced. Walking with Jesus for years, day in and day out, being the leader of his group of disciples. He's writing to a group of churches that didn't get to experience that. And he says to them, though you have not seen him, you you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter got to see Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. And Jesus loved Peter. Okay? But Peter's sight of Jesus is no advantage over any believer's faith in Jesus. Okay? Peter's sight and his physical relationship with Jesus Christ is to no advantage over any believer who has turned to Jesus in faith. Uh, I remember, I think, when I came back from Israel and I showed some pictures of my travels in Israel and stuff, and, and it was was really cool because you could see some, it changes the way you see some things in Scripture when you could be in the land, you could see some things like that, and it was really a great experience. And somebody goes, oh, man, I totally wish I could go back. I don't remember who it was. Somebody said, oh, I wish I could go back and I wish I could even go back in those days and I wish I could be one of the disciples and I wish I could see Jesus myself and like just how, what a strong experience that uh, that would be. Peter says, no, that's to no advantage whatsoever. Though You've not seen him, but you love him. And that's the same as what I get to experience, what I got to experience, Peter says, right? It's of, it's of no advantage whatsoever. Matter of fact, when you think about the disciples who actually were with Jesus, they were in the boat, they were on the side of the, the Sea of Galilee, they were with Jesus, and they still had difficulty and trouble believing in him, right? So, like, being in Jesus' presence was no guarantee that your faith was going to be strong. Peter's physical relationship was no advantage over Uh, over any believers who has faith in him. You have the same quality of faith in Jesus that Peter had. That's what he said. What an assurance, right? To those who are experiencing these trials and difficulties. Anyone who loves Jesus and is loved by Jesus, even when they don't see him, has the same faith that Peter has. This is Jesus's point too, by the way. Post-resurrection. Okay, remember, he's in the upper room with his disciples in the upper room. And uh, there was uh, one moment where he's there with most of the disciples. Thomas wasn't there, right? So Peter was there with all of the other disciples, sans Judas, and Thomas, who happened to be absent this, this time. And so when Thomas comes back, they're telling, we saw Jesus, he was here. And Thomas is like, nope, I don't believe it. You guys are you guys are full of crockery here. I don't believe what you're saying. And until he goes, unless I see it, unless I put my finger in his wounds, I won't believe. A little bit later, it says eight days later, his disciples were inside again. This is in John 20. And Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which is a couple of times that he's done that, right? Like. I I picture Jesus as a prankster, you know, like uh, I don't know if you've seen these videos like America's Funniest Home Videos where 
the kid video of they keep scaring the one employee. They sneak up behind her like, ah, and then she jumps and scares, you know. I kind of picture Jesus doing that. Peace be with you. Ah, they're all scared. Um, Anyway, Uh, so peace be with you. He does this. And then notice what happens. And then he turns to Thomas and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Like these are big. I mean, this is one of the other clear examples in the New Testament of the deity calling Jesus God without any correction or explanation my lord you are the lord and my god thomas says and jesus says have you believed because you've seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed you thomas you saw you you doubted which is why you get the name doubting thomas you doubted, but then when you saw me, you believed. You're like, oh, now I get it. And he goes, blessed, and he affirms Thomas's faith here too, but blessed are those, all of those, who won't see me physically, who won't get to put their finger in my, in my nail-pierced hands, who won't get to put 